<laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here on this lovely Sunday morning. I have the pleasure of introducing today one of our own, a woman who needs no introduction, but she's going to get one. <laughs> um, I asked Lynn earlier this week to, to give me a few words that I could use for a short introduction. And what she wrote, I thought, was so charming and so whimsical that I'm going to read it verbatim in, in its entirety. So, so here goes. Lynn Lowy is the associate organist of St. John's Church. She and her husband David came to Washington from Denver, Colorado, where Lynn was the assistant organist at St. John's Cathedral. She's thrilled to work at St. John's, our St. John's, in a strong and growing music ministry, happy to work with the brilliantly creative staff, and hopes sincerely that this talk, which raises thorny questions about the role of women's hymnody, does not jeopardize her otherwise warm working relationship. <laughs> that is a joke in parents. <laughs> Nothing to fear here. <laughs> Lynn and David, as I think we know, have three sons. Uh, and Ethan Lowy is visiting here from Boston, where he serves as a Unitarian chaplain. With that, everyone, please join me in welcoming. <laughs> to sing yet this morning, so here we go. Thank you, Clark. Thank you, Brent. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, everyone, for laughing at the first joke. That's a great start. <laughs> okay, so what is it about hymns? We're going to look at the first slide and a wonderful quote by William McLean, a civil rights leader and seminary professor about the meaning of hymns. After the attack on 9-11, we as a nation gathered for a memorial service at the National Cathedral. And one of the songs that was sung was Martin Luther's um, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. And it ends with the words, the bodies they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And in that moment, we were united as a nation. And it didn't matter what our beliefs were, who we voted for, there was a sense of unity. And that is the power of hymns. They go to places in our heart where words simply can't quite reach. So that's a good hymn. There are also hymns which because of clumsiness, unwittingness, or simply aging out, uh, can divide us. They can be words about um, our gender, or sexual orientation, our ability or our age, um, using, for, as an example, blindness as a metaphor for sin. That can be difficult to deal with. So words, the point is words are important. Um, makes us feel like there are insiders and outsiders, and all of these isms lead to the same result. Some people feel less valued, less human. It's not the inclusive world we imagine we associate with Jesus. So I like to think of it this way. There are two fish, and they're swimming along, and one says to the other, how's the water? And the other one says, what water? 
the water we swim in can be so, so taken for granted that we don't even think about it. And what does that mean for us as hymn writers, as, as hymn singers, consumers, is that we use the 1982 hymnal, uh, which we love, it's an excellent hymnal, but at the same time, we don't think about it too much. It's 41 years old. If you think about it, our 1940 hymnal was used for 42 years. And so we're getting to that point where some of the hymns maybe don't sit quite as well. But there's no plan to replace it. The idea is what can we use to augment it? And this is something we're actually uh, thinking about very hard in our professional organization, the Association of Anglican Musicians. They're unveiling a hymn supplement this summer, in fact, next week, called the Dallas Hymnary, where they hope to bring some fresh voices and, and um, a more contemporary theolo theological thinking. Jack Reifer and I are working on a parallel project. It's the Women's Sacred Music Project, and we've also commissioned hymns all by, for, and about women. And we are meeting next weekend in Philadelphia to sort through 200 submissions um, and, and, and hopefully to, um, to find the gold that's it's in that collection. So I want to use a, a, a parallel example from the business world. 50 years ago, or if you wish 1982, corporate boards in America were all white men. And so the boardroom, so to speak, the chairs around the table would have been occupied by men in uh, you know, gray suits and ties and so forth. But then uh, some women and people of color trickled onto those boards. And an interesting thing happened. Profits went up. And worker satisfaction improved. Creativity and conversations became more compassionate. There was fruitful collaboration. And it wasn't just an accident because shareholders were paying attention. And they began to insist and then demand that companies that are publicly traded must have diversity on their boards. This isn't about feel good. This is about um, the best results, the best outcomes. So how do we deal with that um, when our hymns are 99% composed by white men, 95% of the uh, texts are by white men. Is there anything missing? Um, what, what is it that we're looking for? In the 15th century, Martin Luther said, hymns are miniature uh, Bible lessons. They should teach us something about how to develop our faith. So in what way do hymns by women uh, accomplish this job? I think of five ways that women bring something. Okay, that's not scientific, but we don't care. We're on a time. <laughs> so you're going to get five ways in 25 minutes. Women more than men tend to write hymns about biblical women. Self-evident, right? But think about the lectionary. The lectionary is our cliff notes to the Bible. We take the whole Bible, we take three quarters of it and throw it away, we take the remaining quarter, and we distribute those lessons across three years. About two dozen biblical women went out with the trash. Um, and what's left, um, some very important stories about biblical women don't happen but once every three years. So there's that, we've got those constraints. But they'll write about 
Hannah and Miriam, Mary, um, biblical saints um, like Julian of Norwich or Teresa of Avila. Um, and uh, I want to look at two examples. They're written a thousand years apart. The first one is by Cassia, a Byzantine nun born in 804. She is the first woman hymn writer we know about, and we actually have 26 of her hymns. Um, now we're going to listen to a little bit of it. Number one, it's in Greek, so we probably won't sing along. <laughs> and, um, number two, it's not a hymn like you would find in your hymnal. It's going to be Byzantine chant, so we'll have that very exotic sound to it. But it's nonetheless beautiful, and I want you to, to listen to it. You have a handout. And on one side it says troparia. That's just Greek for him. And those are the words that Cassia wrote, um, obviously translated into English. And on the other side, you have the passage from Luke 7 that she's referring to. An unnamed woman enters a home where Jesus is having dinner. And she detects the numinous. That word means divinity. She came in and she perceived that God was in the room. The rest of the men, no response. And she begins to weep. And she says her tears are like a cloud being wrung of seawater. It's a monsoon. And instead of asking her to leave like Jesus is being told, his infinite mercy bends to the pain in her heart. So we have a whole bunch of lessons here. We have a woman writing about a biblical woman who teaches us scripture, who writes about the depth of God's mercy, illustrates the love and respect Jesus showed to women throughout his ministry, and also that in our vulnerability, we can perceive the numinous. Let's listen to this poem, please. was written by Linda Wilberger Egan, who, who also wrote the words and the music, just like Cassia. In this case, um, 
Uh, she's writing about several biblical women, and we're going to sing this hymn in just a minute. This is number 673 in our hymnal. There's a, a bit of a backstory to this I, I'd like to include. By strange coincidence, actually, because of this hymn project that Jack and I are working on, I received an email and a hymn submission from Linda Wilberger Egan. And I was so pleased, and I took the opportunity to ask her about this hymn. I said, was it really the only hymn commissioned by a woman uh, for, the, for the hymn? And she said, oh no, oh no. This is how it happened. I wrote a hymn. I shared it with a neighbor. My neighbor shared it with the religion professor at Swarthmore College, who had lunch with Marriott Hatchett, who was the chair of the hymn committee, who then gave it to his copy editor, who called me and said he'd like to use our hymn, my hymn. And I said, what? He said, yes, we're under pressure to include a hymn by a woman. <laughs> and she said, well, why not Ruth Duck? She has a long history of hymn writing, and she's a seminary professor. He said, no, 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 no. We just want yours. We just want one. <laughs> so let's give this one a try. Um, you have, here we go. <clears throat> to hymn writing is expanded language for God. We have a wonderful apology. Well, apology is too strong. I'll let you read this. 
is in February of this year. The Church of England, as I read this, is saying that for the last 400 years, yes, we have made God out to be remarkably like Henry VIII, the white guy with a beard. But, you know, really, in fact, gender-neutral language is more actually what scripture gives us. So we're sorry about that. Then it does go on to say that there are no immediate decisions looming. <laughs> but our 1982 hymnal is also full of language describing God as a man, a king, a prince, a he, father, son, and holy ghost, the kingdom of God. It can be really hard to change. But um, women clergy have been really invested in this transition to more inclusive language and very effective. Of course, the Church of England didn't ordain women until 1994, 20 years after the US, but it still helps. Julian of Norwich wrote in the 14th century that as surely as God is our father, God is also our mother. So this thinking is out there. In a recent sermon uh, by Rob Fisher, he said, we can imagine the Trinity as God for us, God with us, God within us. Uh, Ruth Duck wrote a doxology freeing God from those traditional um, straight-jacketed pronouns. Praise God, the source of life and birth. Praise God, the word who came to earth. Praise God, the spirit, holy flame. All glory, honor to God's name. I want to sing now a hymn that is newly written, another new collaboration and submission from our project, which is called Resounding Voices. The words are by Ruth Duck, this seminary professor who's been so, so in, she came up with like 70 names for gods in her, in her hymns. Um, it's called Healing River of the Spirit. And so she, you look at the different ways that she describes God as wellspring and living stream and so forth. The music is written by Stephen Tappy, who is a, a close friend of mine. We worked together at the cathedral. He was the music director. He's a fine Colorado composer. And he's since retired to the Rocky Mountains, where he has 32 acres um, up on a mountainside. And so when he writes about Elk Haven, I hear the stream sort of jagged, running its jagged course down the mountainside in this tune. It, it's a, a beautiful tune. I'm going to just play a little bit of it. that I think women have contributed to our hymn writing is in the style known as gospel music. So yes, it was Thomas A. Dorsey 
who first conceived of the idea of taking what they call white gospel music by itinerant evangelists who would go around, um, people like Homer Rodeheaver, um, but also the hymns of Charles Wesley, and putting these together with music of the black folk church. And that was African call and response, lots of percussion, always uh, a, someone with a stick hitting the ground, banjo, drums, um, things like improvisation. Um, no rest ever is left alone. You must fill in all the rests. Um, and it's never the same twice. And so there are no bystanders in this music. It's about communication. Everyone is involved in the dance. Um, so he conceived of the idea, but around Thomas Dorsey up in Chicago were um, Roberta Martin, Sally Martin, Lucy Campbell, Doris Akers, Sister Rosetta Tharp. And these women composers, arrangers, and performers really carried the style forward, and it wouldn't be the same without them. So I'd love to listen to this example by uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, who composed it and arranged it and performed it. It's based on a tune, a plantation tune called Down by the Riverside.
example um, is about folk music. We have very, very few hymns outside of gospel music in the first half of the 20th century. We have Lord of All Hopefulness, and we have Morning, has, morning is Broken. Um, but in the second half, with the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, folk music became a powerful medium. And we have women hymn writers that use that language. Um, the one I want to show you is written by Elizabeth Poston, an English composer. Uh, you may know her, um, Jesus Christ the Apple Tree. But she was an ethnomusicologist of folk music. She studied with Ralph Vaughan Williams. And she toured uh, collecting these folk songs. She toured the United States, collected songs from Appalachia, from the South, and she would create these simple arrangements which were authentic. So this hymn, so in 1967, she was asked to be music editor of something called the Cambridge Hymnal. And its target audience was Episcopal high schools and boarding schools. They wanted to make the music there more um, interesting, more, you know, more singable. And so they commissioned a lot of music. Uh, she commissioned lots of music by women, more than one. Uh, Imogen Holst, the daughter of Gustav Holst, for example. She wrote some hymns herself. She added 60 descans. And we're going to look at a hymn she wrote the music for. The text, Balulalo, was written in uh, 400 years ago, so it's old English text. Her new accompaniment, which is this beautiful, uh, informed, folk song style, is very sophisticated, in fact, but it, it keeps this style. So I'm going to play the melody once for you, and then we'll, we'll sing it. Stems up are your melody. example, and then we'll have a little bit of time for questions. <coughs> so the final contribution that women bring is simply the experience of being a woman. And that can be growing up and wanting to be a lector or a chalice bearer and being told, no, you can't do that um, because you were born before 1964. Or maybe you want to be a priest and you're told, absolutely, um, you know, quit dreaming. Women come from a lot of helping professions, school teachers, uh, cleaners, cooks, healthcare providers, um, teachers. And so they bring that experience. 
so that their role in society is somewhat defined in those uh, niche professions. And when women asked to be priests, to be leaders in the church, there was more than a little pushback. And I think it's um, interesting to look at a historic clip about that time to remember that only 50 years ago we were looking at this kind of, of um, resistance. This is the story of the Philadelphia 11. They were the first Episcopal priests, women, in, in our denomination. They were ordained by three retired bishops who then faced charges of heresy. Um, and so let's, let's look at this. This is a trailer for a new documentary. My mother said to me that I had told her when I was a little girl that I wanted to be a priest. She and my dad both said, well, that's wonderful, honey, but you know, that's just not what girls do. A heated debate has been going on in the Episcopal Church on whether women can serve as priests. There's no reason why uh, a woman couldn't be president or a judge or uh, But the one thing that she absolutely cannot be is a mom. I get so tired of being decided about behind my back. The oppressor cannot be the instrument of liberation of the oppressed. And yet in this structure, women do not have the power to affect their own liberation. Conservative and liberal and progressive and radical and right on the edge. We were not the same by any means. The phones were ringing off the hook. One woman said, are you people going to ordain women there today? And I said, yes, we are. And she said, you're going to split this church right in half. I said, the church is already split in half. That's why we're doing it. Proceedings here at Active It is simply a road which a woman cannot fail. God shall be called Father, and so shall his priests. There are all these lights, NBC, ABC, CBS, were out there with their big cameras, and it was like, my goodness. It was so clear that we were being called to that day, and we were willing to stand, and we would not be denied this. The Episcopal House of Bishops today ruled invalid last month's ordination of 11 women as priests. We've kept going to parishes that want us there as priests. Of course, we're called a bunch of man-hating dykes, bitches and shrews and all of this stuff. At some point, what was happened to us, of course, was a big question. The elected little priestesses all in a row, you know, like the little Indians. I'd be delighted if they go away. I suggest to you that we cannot wait to settle questions of the freedom of all of humanity. Women are either free in our society or they are not. There's a saying, you know, you need to speak the truth even if your voice shakes. And that's, uh, that's what I did. to convey this morning is that women can contribute in significant ways 
to our hymns as well as our worship at the altar. They augment our historic collections and they bring not just a sprinkling of diversity, but new ways of thinking and of perceiving God. In general, I would say women write hymns about the Holy Spirit. They write about um, interpersonal relationships, the ministry of Jesus on earth, not the end, Christ on a throne. They write about healing, caring, pain, injustice, the imperfect world, compassion, and our fragile earth. They write for children, and they write about a personal savior. His eyes on the sparrow was written by a woman. They bring a new viewpoints and welcome more people to the table. Not the boardroom table, but the communion table. That's the same table where Jesus is the host welcoming all. I submission, which is glorious. Um, these are the words. This was written um, by two people who worked together, Father Robert Easton, an English priest who was a school chaplain, and his musician, Gieslen Rees-Trapp, who is also uh, a friend of mine and a really up-and-coming composer in England. They worked at a school called Highgate. So this is called Highgate. And the children there are um, all secular, and if they have a faith, it is not Christianity. So Father Robert wanted to write a text that told the whole Christian story, and that's what it is. Let's read the first four verses, and we're going to sing the fifth one. Five begins with an image from Deuteronomy.
think Lynn is willing to stay to answer some questions. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to invite the St. John's Choir to get off. Read the prayer to Jack had to leave, but you know, Jack Reifer um, went to Calvin College. And so, yes, we are exploring all of the, in fact, the collection we're putting together is both ecumenical and interfaith. So we also have three Jewish um, cantors on our board. Good. So yes. And when will that be coming out? It's gonna be published online in November. Southern Baptist Convention is meeting this weekend in New Orleans, and one of the issues is now that Pat Robertson is gone, is uh, yes. ordination of women. Huh. It's on. Yeah. In the paper this morning. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not. I have no comment on that. <laughs> It's, it's so deeply ingrained in our culture. It is. The, the whole white men serve. They, they occupy all the leadership roles. They're, they're reserved in advance. Lynn? Yes. Um, if we can't use he and she, will all, will all references pronoun-wise be eliminated and will simply no. use other no. words? No. We're still using the 1982 hymnal. I know we are, we are but yes. future. No, the point is not to, you know, my mother, bless her heart, 1928, uh, she was born. She would have a very, very hard time with that. And, and it would be a disservice to go and ask her to sing new hymns. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but what we're trying to do is add to, add. we're adding, we're augmenting a, a fabulous collection of hymns. Many of which, I mean, look at Martin Luther. Right? A mighty fortress is our God. We're not going to change those pronouns. And for too many people, it's really more about thinking God of, can also be, can also be. 
Yes, there's a lot of anxiety about that, and I'm glad you said that. Yes, anything else? All right. Thank you. Robert, thank you so much.